This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 26th of May. And this week, we had a couple of hot topics. First up, we looked at the crisis in girls' sports, as figures show that more than two-thirds of teenagers are dropping out of teams at high school. Famous female footballer Beth Mead from the UK told us how she's campaigning to stop that trend. Plus, we heard from one coach looking to get girls involved in cricket. Victoria Stewart is a PE teacher at Repton Albasha. We also discussed children's reading on the show because Dubai's private schools have been ranked sixth in the world for literacy rates in a recent respected global study. Fatima Boo Ali, who's head of school inspections with the KHDA, talked us through how they made so much progress. Meanwhile, what can you do if your child is a reluctant reader? We spoke to Isabel Abelhall. She's the founder of the Emirates Literature Foundation, and she told us how to develop your very own bookworms at home. Plus, it's the year of sustainability here in the UAE, but how can we teach our children more about climate change? UAE-based author and illustrator Leona Collins has helped to write a five-book series to make eco-issues more interesting. She joined us to discuss food security, clean water, recycling and more. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Yes, welcome back to the programme and welcome to Eye on Education. It is our chance to look at all the top education stories that are crossing our desk this week. Plus, uh, it makes natural sense to do it at at this time of the week because, of course, it is nearly school run time. Unbelievable, though it might be. Kids are due to to sort of break up in about an hour. Uh, So no doubt around about 11.30, most of the parents in the country get into their cars to go and pick them up. So a very good time for us to talk about education and anything to do with schools, nurseries and universities. I've been joined in the studio uh, by producer Jennifer Crichton, who's been running through all those hot topics, basically all the all the sort of education news headlines to give you a sense of, of how things are developing in the country. And oddly enough, it's quite an exciting time in the UAE at the moment in the education space because uh, the ministry here are making a lot of changes. They're in the sort of the middle of the process, the whole sort of top draw of staff at the ministry was changed about a year ago. And since then, there's clearly a lot of work going on behind the scenes to sort of change the format of education. Uh, The first thing that they introduced was that uh, lessons like science and maths were going to be taught in English rather than Arabic. I mean, I can only imagine how much of a change that's making behind the school gates. But that was just one. There are more to come. And in fact, Jen, they announced, um, the Ministry of Education announced something new this this week, didn't they? That's right. They've unveiled a new elective subject model. And that's aimed at allowing pupils to tailor their studies to their own personal areas of interest and aptitude from the age of 16. Now, this is something that we do see in some other curriculums. But now this new scheme will apply to both public and private schools that follow the Ministry of Education's own curriculum in years 11 and 12. Now, students will have to choose six core subjects as part of their studies. They have to study Arabic, Islamic studies, social studies and moral education, as well as English, maths and PE. But the remaining subjects are then going to be divided up into new elective groups, offering a choice of sciences, computing, creatives and innovation subjects, as well as health sciences and arts. And so the total number of subjects will be different according to 
to what each pupil wants to do. So it's just giving youngsters a bit more choice when they get into those kind of pre-college university career choice years to really focus on what interests them and what they're good at, I guess. That's quite interesting. That's something that you do already in the English curriculum, which is so it's. I hadn't realised that it didn't happen in the UAE curriculum. So intriguing that they're sort of becoming more aligned, I suppose, to international norms there. Now, uh, last week we were talking in detail. In fact, I think it was a bit longer than that. We talked in detail about the KHDA's uh, assessment they did. So the KHDA looks after the private schools in Dubai and they released their results a good couple of weeks ago now. Uh, Lots of schools did very well indeed. Lots of schools were therefore allowed to put up their fees, uh, which is less less good news for parents, I suppose. And now we've got the Sharjah results through. That's right. And of course, we had Abu Dhabi before as well. So Sharjah is very much bringing up the rear with the three schools. And those school inspections have just come out for Sharjah with one school rated as outstanding and nine others deemed very good this year. The Sharjah Private Education Authority's ITCAN programme also ranked 44 schools as good, 53 as acceptable and 3 as weak and no school was ranked as very weak so none in the bottom tier there in Sharjah. So that sort of completes the inspection process for the year for the three biggest emirates Um, and it does also, as you say, impact the fees in Sharjah as well. So those Parents in Sharjah will be looking at these with with great interest. Yeah, it's one of those things like you're thrilled that your school's done really well. Um, But you're also, you know, you you approach those results with a certain amount of trepidation. (laughs) I have to admit with our school, we have not got outstanding at our school. And quite a lot of the parents were sort of a bit upset about it. Apparently the teachers were very upset. I was thrilled. I was like, that's that's fine. It means that the fees aren't going to go up anymore. I'm happy with the quality of the teaching. Uh, and it means that fees won't increase. Now, we're going to stay within the school gates now because uh, one school in Dubai has been mentioned in the newspapers uh, for asking children not to bring energy drinks to school. But I happen to know that uh, that my school has done this as well. I got a letter from them a couple of weeks ago. And basically, it's all based on the fact that these YouTubers have yes. released this drink, Prime. And for a long time, it wasn't available in the UAE. You had to buy it abroad and it was even more ridiculously expensive. But now you can buy it here. And certainly it's quite sweet in some ways. It's been appearing at children's birthday parties in their party bags. No, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My boys have both had it in a party bag in the last in the last sort of two weeks. And what happened is they saved the bottle and they and so they're drinking water out of the bottle because yeah. because they feel it looks cool to walk around with it but of course there's a bit of a negative to these fizzy drinks isn't there that's it and educators at as you see at one particular school although we think that this is happening across more schools have asked parents to ensure that their kids don't bring in prime and other drinks like those and they've been expressing concerns about the health implications of overconsumption now we were having a discussion this morning because our understanding was that these were already banned in schools and that is the case we checked and there are regulations in place by the KHDA banning certain unhealthy foods and drinks from schools but of course those only really impact on school canteen options so now these circulars going out to parents are asking for parents to ensure that their kids don't bring these drinks themselves they're saying that research shows that children who regularly consume caffeinated drinks are at greater risk of anxiety insomnia and even addiction 
Now, the most recent study I could find was a 2020 study out of Harvard University, and it found childhood consumption of energy drinks can also increase stress and aggressive behaviour, and it can put adults and children at increased risk of obesity, type 2 diabetes. So there are health implications with drinking these too often. Of course, there is an argument that everything in moderation, but what the schools are saying is just not in school right now. Thank you. Yeah, definitely not for breakfast. I mean, my goodness me, that how you manage to get a bunch of energetic young children to sit down and listen without them being fueled with caffeine and sugar. Uh, I mean, it's just, it sort of goes without saying, don't give your child prime for breakfast, please. I cannot even begin to imagine my child after an energy drink. I mean, the last thing that he needs is caffeine. He has the energy of 10 sons as it is. So you need wide open spaces in those circumstances. Wide open spaces. Field and a beaches. lot of time. Yes, indeed. Thank goodness for the public beaches. <laughs> Maybe His Highness Sheikh Mohammed has got lots of young boy grandchildren and he's realised that we need more space. And a, and a ready supply of prime. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's look at higher education now because the UE's next generation of design talent this week unveiled their work to the public for the first time. This happens each year and I have to say uh, the exhibition is always, I actually went to the exhibition once, I think I must have done a show live from it or something, but I was absolutely astonished by the quality of the work. The quality is incredible. So this is the Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation or DIDI as it's known and it is the only institute of its kind in the Middle East. Now it opened its annual graduate show at D3 on Tuesday and this year the show is themed around COP28 so students have been creating everything from products to fashion to gaming but all of it's got a sustainable edge this year. So the creations on show include underwater sculptures that are made from shells but have been designed to support marine diversity and habitats. We've got what they've described as multifunctional clothing, so clothing that you can use in different ways but it's all been made using new zero waste techniques and there's so much more to it than that as well so we'll be hearing soon from Didi's Dean Hani Asfor about what we can expect from that show and it's definitely worth a look. Yeah fantastic yeah we'll hear more about that in the next few minutes. Now On the subject of childhood health, one of women's football's highest profile stars was actually in Dubai this week as part of a new initiative aimed at getting more kids involved in sports and exercise. It's the Lioness Beth Mead, and she's called the Lioness because that is she's from the UK, and that's what the UK calls its female footballers. The English women's football team, yes. So the England men are the Lions, and the English women are the Lionesses. And they, of course, won the European Championship last summer. Now Beth Mead was herself marked out as the top goal scorer in that tournament and was named as the best player of the tournament so she really is a huge name in women's football and she's been visiting Dubai this week as an ambassador for Cognita Education's Enrich Me programme. So she's been visiting kids in school to talk about her journey to sporting success and what we've been speaking to her about is not just what it took for her to get to the top of the women's game but also what can be done to stem the drop-up out of girls from team sports once they reach their teenage years because we were looking at the statistics around this and they're they're pretty staggering you know you've got girls that are really into sports at school primary school level that it just drops off a cliff when they get to high school yeah i remember my high school years i just i was never good at sport to start with And it got to the point where when you're a young child and, you know, when they pick for the netball team, you get two captains and then they can pick people Mm -hmm. one by one. I just got fed up with always being the last to be picked. 
And so ultimately, that's why I lost interest was because, you know, I mean, maybe I should have had a slightly stronger personality or a stronger character. But there's only so many times you can be picked last for a football team without starting to feel like you're basically not very good at it. So what's the point in trying? And maybe that's the framework that needs to be adjusted. And then, of course, swimming when you're a teenager and you're self-conscious about your body, you don't want to go swimming with the boys. And we were at a co-ed school. So maybe in that situation, the best way is to separate it out. But mostly I just wasn't very good at it. So So I'd be intrigued to know. In fact, I'd be really intrigued to hear from any parents of teenagers who, who were good at sport, but then once they got to their teenage years, they didn't want to do it. Because I'd like to get into the psychology of it, of, of why girls are giving it up, whether it's self-consciousness, whether it's because they're not encouraged enough, whether it's because they're watching too much TikTok and they just want to take selfies of each other. I mean, you know, what is it that, that's actually causing this dropout? And that anxiety and, and lack of confidence does seem to be a, a major driving factor. I mean, like you, I wasn't particularly sporty. I danced, but I didn't do team sports. But what this the research seems to suggest is that this is the case for girls who are good at sport. It's not just kids who are getting picked last who aren't particularly promising. This is kids who have real potential in sport but are dropping out because of the judgment of others or the lack of confidence when they get to those awkward teenage years. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We are putting the spotlight on sport in schools today and it's in part because about a story I actually heard about on the school run. I'm not the best person on the school run. I'm normally a bit stressed out and a bit hot and, you know, not really talking to anyone. Um, But someone did take me to one side and go, did you know that there's only one under 11s girls cricket team in the whole country? I was like, no, what? That's bizarre. And and that sort of really got us thinking because we knew we had an interview with the famous footballer, Beth Mead. She's one of the lionesses. Um, She's one of the, you know, and they they won the Champions League, you know, the Women's Europe's League this year. Was it this year or last year? Anyway, she's famous. She's called Beth Mead. She came out to Dubai recently and we got an interview with her. And obviously one of the things that she talks about is the fact that girls are dropping out of sport at an alarming rate, particularly around the teenage years. And so the two stories sort of met in my mind and I thought that is perfect for Iona Education. So the first thing we did is chatted to some of the girls who are involved in the cricket team. Now, these are the voices of Emma, Lottie and Chloe. And basically they're telling us all about what it's like to play cricket. There are no other under 11 girls cricket teams so they have to play against boys and this is what they have to say about it i really enjoy cricket because it's a team sport it's a chance to do something that boys can do and maybe even better everybody gets a chance to do everything like bowl bat and wicket and i like that we all move positions and get to run and bat and all get to touch the ball my favorite position is bowling there's a number of things you can do Feed the ball to the batter, stump the batter out and catch them out. The reason why other girls aren't playing yet is because it's a boy sport in Dubai and not that big for girls yet. And our school wants to start a new tradition where we're the first girls to enter into a league for cricket and hopefully other schools will follow. I like cricket because it's a team sport and you can work together um, with your team and also it's sort of independent because people like trust you to do good bowling, you to do good uh, batting and good fielding. I feel quite proud and honoured that we're playing against boys because we're one of the first girls to play against boys competitively 
I think other girls aren't playing because they might say cricket is quite a boy sport and rounders is quite a girl sport, so maybe that's why they didn't get introduced. But hopefully uh, next year all schools will get introduced. I like cricket because I like using my initiative and also working as a team with everybody else. I feel proud of myself because it's a good achievement to play against boys in a sport that you haven't played before. I think they're not playing because um, they're not playing and they think that girls can't play cricket because they think boys only play cricket because it's a very boy sport, but I think they should get into it. Really lovely there to hear from Emma, Lottie and Chloe, all on the under-11s girls cricket team uh, and having to play against boys and and winning, from what I hear. I'm joined now by their coach, Victoria Stewart. She's head of Year 7 and 8 and a PE teacher at Repton Albasha. Victoria, lovely to have you join us in the show. I should say Miss Stewart, shouldn't I, really? (laughs) You can call me Victoria. Um, Thank you for inviting us. It's a really important subject for um, the girls' side of the PE department and it's really nice to be able to... Um, promote cricket just that little bit more than what we have been doing um, with the girls in the leagues. So why do you think it is that more schools aren't involving girls in cricket? What do girls play instead in the summer term? Them rounders. But, ah. but what we've We've been to the UK and we've seen the movement in the UK. Um, every year we take our year sixes back to the UK on sports tour. And when we were at our sister school, Repton Prep School, they informed us that the movement was away from rounders and more towards girl cricket, girls' cricket. The reason being is there is a better pathway for girls in cricket. So they start at as young as five, and that's what we have started to do in our schools. So our year ones and twos will do the fundamentals. And then we actually have a girls' team in the under-8s, under-9s, under-10s and under-11s because... The next pathway is from 8 to 11, which is um, Dynamo's cricket, which is more competitive cricket. Because the girls are like the boys. They want to play games. They don't just want to do the fundamentals. They want to put it into um, fixtures. Unfortunately, we're, we're very much like football was back in the day in UK. When I played football, I had to play in a boys' team. And there was one or two girls that were strong enough to play in that team. Um And that's similar to cricket. So there are some girls playing, but they're part of the boys' team. And we just wanted to make a movement where the girls could play as a full team. Unfortunately, that means that they have to play against boys until more schools come on board and give these students the opportunities to play as a full team. It's really intriguing that they're having to play against the boys' teams. But I suppose at the sort of under-11 age... I'm just wondering whether it makes any difference, you know, as far as strength and things like that. You know, is it an unfair advantage for an under-11 boy to be playing against an under-11 girl? I suppose it will get more of an advantage as they get older. Um, We have taken quite a few wins. So that kind of tells us that there's not a, a massive advantage. But we've really, really stuck with the girls on the fundamentals. We want them to bowl legal balls. We want them to know the full technique of batting. We haven't just thrown them in there. Um, they have really focused on those parts. Their fielding was good anyway from their background in rounders. Um, but for, for us... No, experience is more important when it comes to that gap. If you've played more and you've had 
years of coaching, you're going to be stronger. Now, obviously, when the kids are young, there is quite a sort of girls against boys kind of dynamic within schools. I mean, certainly uh, my boys won't even play with girls. So <laughs> yeah. what's the and they're under 10. So, I mean, what's the what's the mood when you turn up to other schools with your pack of girls, your team of girls and they win against the team of boys? Yeah, well, we had that actually um, yesterday morning. We turned up at a school with our under 10s and under 11s and we I've emailed ahead to let that teacher know that we're coming as a girls team because we're just down as Repton Albasha. And they and their their kind of reaction to that is, oh, okay. Um and we and often I see the reaction of the boys, they kind of giggle and think, Oh, this is gonna be easy <laughs> you know, because they're ten year old boys and they oh, have yeah, that's you know, right. I mean like I have, your I son, have a ten year old yeah, boy. Yeah. They'd have that same reaction and actually the under ten girls beat this team, uh, their under 10 A team, and um, the PE teacher came up after and said, that's really humbled our boys today. It's good for them. It's good for them to see it because I still get that nonsense on the school run that boys are stronger than girls and boys (laughs) are better than girls. And, you know, you have to sort of seek out the arguments, the right words to to argue against them. Victoria, we're going to come back to you in just a minute. I'm mid-conversation with Victoria Stewart. She's head of year seven and eight and a PE teacher at Repton Albasha. She also looks after that under-11s girls cricket team, which is the only one in the whole country. We are as a sort of feature on the programme today, talking about girls in sport and and trying to sort of decipher why it is that the girls drop out when they get to high school, when they enter their teenage years. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to the Agenda. Welcome back to Eye on Education. Georgia here. I'm with you all the way through until one o'clock. And we are discussing that hot topic of girls in sports on the programme today. Very grateful to Zainab's message. She says that she's 29 now, uh, but in her case, she lost interest in sports because her gang split up. Most of them scattered around the world for further studies. And therefore, I just didn't have the motivation to play anymore. And I joined other groups, but ultimately, it's just not really the same. Really interesting. And basically, it all comes off the fact that uh, we've seen these statistics that show that about two thirds of girls, once they hit high school, even if they're sporty, they tend to drop out. Now, one coach who is trying to stop the rot, so to speak, uh, is PE teacher Victoria Stewart. She's head of year seven and eight at Repton Albasha. She's joined me in the studio today. And the reason why we've brought Victoria in is because she's the coach of the only under 11s girls cricket team in the whole country. Now, the reason why that's relevant is because it means they're having to play against boys. And Victoria's just been telling us that they're winning quite often. Uh, I mean, Victoria, do you notice a difference between the the style of the girls and the boys when they're playing cricket? Are the girls, you know, better sportswomen than the boys, for example? Is there a maturity there that you see in under 11 girls that you don't necessarily see in the boys? Yeah, I think the girls are very technical. They want to do it right. Um, they will always want to bowl with a straight arm, whereas the boys just want to hit it as fast as possible. Um, and uh, the difference we see is the power on the batting. The boys are a bit stronger at batting. And so our girls have been challenged that they cannot bowl a nice slow ball. So we've had them in the nets and we're trying to increase the speed so that the boys can't hit them for fours and sixes. But it's all been a learning curve this year and it's just so great for their development that they are having these matches. So they take a lot away from it and then they, they are 
so um, particular and they're so competitive that they will want to go into nets and get faster so that the boys can't have something above them. It's fantastic to hear about how they're developing. I mean, obviously you teach year seven and eight. That's heading towards the teenage years and and high school, basically. Why do you think we're seeing such a massive drop off when it comes to girls playing sport? Well, I think Zainab's kind of mentioned the the peers. Mm. It is that is um, they have a huge influence on each other. And if some of your peers fall out, then others will follow. I do think that to stop that, you know, when I think about um, my own sporting journey, if you go down a pathway that we said that the UK have with football for girls, with cricket for girls, you become peers with your clubs and your academies. And then you are with like-minded people who want to be good at sport and want to keep training and get better and head towards that professional um, athlete um, that you that they want to be, then they're more likely to stay in sport mm. because they have that encouragement and they, they have those peers around them with similar goals. Do girls get self-conscious about how they look as they go into the teenage years? I, I, you know, do they worry about how their sports kit looks on them? Do they worry about you know, making a fool out of themselves if they miss a shot, for example. Yeah, they've very much become more self-conscious. I know back when I was teaching in the UK, there was a big um, campaign run from Nike about girls in in sport. And one of the things that came back was they didn't like the um, PE kit. They didn't like that some, back in the day, they were wearing skirts, you know, with tops. And so there was a big initiative about making sure that the PE kit was kind of gender neutral. So they were wearing what the boys were wearing and that, you know, supported them staying into sport a bit longer. But, yeah, I, I do think that does play into it as well. Yeah, It's really interesting because, of course, it's the one thing that we don't want girls to stop doing, you know, especially now having a healthy lifestyle is becoming so important. You know, we've got problems of obesity, not just here yeah. in the UAE, but but further afield. And, and keeping up a good sort of fitness practice is one way to avoid that type of thing. Do you think the secret is is segregation when it comes to, to sport? Always, always having them in different classes? Um, I think it heads more towards that way in senior school. In primary, we pretty much it's all in. Well, pack them um, in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pack them in. Let's compete against each other. But I do think it does help them continue, especially with swimming, if they are um, single. Yeah, yeah. Sets. You'd have had to pay me money to yeah. get into a swimming <laughs> costume age 13 or 14 in front of boys, basically. Yes. We all use the same excuse, which everyone knows what it is. I won't say it on the radio. But we <laughs> yeah. all use the same excuse every single week for about three years. Uh, <laughs> and the teachers must have known what we were doing. We, they... we know. <laughs> we know. Victoria Stewart, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting us and advocating for girls cricket. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. That was Victoria Stewart. She is head of year seven and eight, also a PE teacher at Repton Albasha and the coach of that, the first under 11s girls cricket team in the whole country. It was a pleasure hearing from Emma, Lottie and Chloe who are on that team. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent 
independent and future-ready young people. Yeah, so it's been awesome hearing about the under-11s girls cricket team from Repton Al-Basha who are making waves in Dubai's school sports scene by taking on the boys and winning. But it did get us thinking about what the future holds for those girls and how they can be encouraged to kind of carry on breaking barriers once they enter those tricky teenage years. And it's not a baseless worry. We looked at the stats this morning because a recent study by Women in Sport in the UK found that more than one million teenage girls who once considered themselves sporty basically disengaged from formal activity once they moved to high school. And essentially around two thirds of them said they feared being judged by others and another two thirds cited a lack of confidence. Now that is a situation that famous female footballer Beth Mead understands more than most. Now she's been a star from both Arsenal and England's Lionesses. She helped inspire her country to European Championship success last summer and basically marked herself out as a top goal scorer. She was also named best player of the tournament. She's probably the most famous female footballer in the world. And in the last week or so, she's been in Dubai making her first visit as an ambassador for the Cognita Education's Enrich Me programme. Now, she did sit down with our very own Chris McCarty and she began by explaining why it felt important to visit the city. I think speaking about it from afar in England is a little bit different to seeing it and being more invested now I'm here and I've been lucky enough to have the chance uh, to go around the different schools that are involved in the Enrich Me programme, meet the children, boys and girls. I've had amazing welcomes everywhere I've gone. It's very, very overwhelming. But um, yeah, it's been great to meet the kids, kind of. You know, one of the parents came up to me and said, my daughter came home after the Foot Lab stuff the other day. She said, I want to be a lioness when I grow up. And I think for me, if I can have that small little bit of inspiration for them kids and help them want to achieve something, um, I think I'm doing something not too bad. It's really interesting to see how football uh, and specifically females football, uh, female football rather, is really riding a crest of a wave at the moment. Huge in the UK where the women's Super League is seeing record attendances and even, you know, really big TV audiences. But it wasn't always the case, as uh, Beth says. When I first started my first ever session, there wasn't football teams or programmes or anything available for me to do with girls or whatever it may be. So... I literally went to a volunteered Saturday morning, probably 10 of us running around the pitch from the village, all boys, only me as a girl. The coach obviously turned around and was like, they're quite rough, these boys, but she's welcome to join in. And then my mum said, she's fine, just throw her and get rid of her energy. That's why the only reason my mum took me. <laughs> and uh, she returned, he was like, she's rougher than most of the boys. Like, she's actually very, very good. Like, you should take her further afield. And my closest one then at that point was Middlesbrough. Yeah. But... There wasn't a lot available. There wasn't many pathways. There wasn't much foundation. No one cared about women's or girls' football at that point. So I actually played with a boys' team in Middlesbrough for quite a while before the girls' team for the same club then got made. And then I ended up being in that squad after. So was that you driving it, Beth? Were you pestering mum and dad? Were you, guys, I want to play, I want to wait, I want to play. Or was that mum and dad pushing you? Um, I loved every sport. So it wasn't as if I was like, I want to go and play football and that's it. My mum tried to make me into a ballerina. I got in trouble every time, uh, that one. My mum sat outside, she said, the door's open and it's not time, Beth's definitely coming out. And it was me getting dragged out because I was disrupting the class because I had too much energy. Mum was like, I've paid 3 50 first, get back in. 
Anyway, she bribed me to get me through my first ballet exam and bought me a dog because I always wanted a dog. Did that, and then that was ballet done. I was like, no, thank you. But I had so much energy. My mum was like, how am I going to get rid of it? So obviously she just took me to football, and I fell in love the first time I went and played, and that was my first official session. But as I grew up through school and stuff, and I think that's important for Enrich Me programme, any sport's fine. You've got to do them all to figure out what your favourite is or what one you think you excel yeah. in most. That's what I did. I was I was lucky that I was pretty good at quite a lot of sports. I I had um, to choose between hockey and football in the end. So I was uh, like nationally started playing hockey quite high level. Wasn't quite my cup of tea, just more culture wise. I was walking in with my battered slashing. Yeah, whereas they had brand new sticks, and I was like, I didn't want to wear the skirt. I wasn't all about that. I was a big tomboy, and I thought, Do you know, what? football is my love, and that's why I obviously ended up pursuing it. It's been really lovely. I'm getting lots of messages from people saying that their daughter is playing school, uh, playing sport. Trip T says, my daughter Shanae has just been selected in cricket team at Dubai International Academy. She's also in the school swim team. She's 11 and I'm so proud to see her soar in sport. And I'm so happy that Dubai has the ecosystem supporting girls' development. Uh, but unfortunately, the stats will tell you that a huge swathe of young, talented girls give up on sport once they reach high school. But why is that? Beth Mead uh, had some ideas. It's difficult. I think I'm lucky in the sense, and the girls, I think, who I play with England, Arsenal, all say the same. We, I, we were lucky that we had the support system. My mum, dad, not everybody has that. Yeah. And that's that's hard. And if you can find people that's great but it's finding them that's a difficult part and again was things put in place are them foundations there to help girls do you know you walk around the corner and there's a girls football session obviously i'm doing stuff in england to help um girls get involved more and since the euros has been obviously a program that i've done and it's got 60 percent more girls invested in into it it's a free program and they go and it's dotted everywhere all over the country so it makes it so easy and accessible and the fa are doing great of um they're opening a pitch 23 pitches all over the country of every lioness that was in the squad for the euros in our hometowns which they're doing which is wow. incredible so these things getting put in place so the girls will have a pitch to go to and it's yes it's under my name but that gives them the chance to have something there and excel in that so that's incredible but that wasn't around when we were younger. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's all just very new and getting the investment it deserves. Now, Beth says that with the increased number of girls playing the game, it's now getting more competitive than ever. I was part of, like, I was a big fish in a little pond, would I say, and now there's a big, big pond and a lot of little fishes in it. So it's increasingly difficult for girls, you know, to get to that top, top level. Like, you look at uh, the league at the moment, because the English league's so attractive, probably the best one in the world right yeah. now. Every player's coming to it, so your world-class players are coming. So them 16-year-olds that are trying to come through from academy, it's hard. The club need to get the right balance. Can we keep them players, but help them get football maybe elsewhere on loan? Yeah. But it's so hard for them to then come in and break through into that system now. But then, again, the standards have then rise. It's scary the players that are going to have to come through because they have to shine to get through. Now, it is, of course, the schools that bring our children forward, that encourage our children to play play sport. Beth says she's really passionate about outreach school programmes, specifically the Cognita run one called Enrich Me that sponsors her. Do you know, I'm a a doer and I don't like to just talk, I like to do as well. And yes, I'm rehabbing, but look, I think I owe it to the younger generation to help them feed in 
to what they want to do, whether whatever sport they choose to do. But I loved it when Kelly Smith or a, someone came in and inspired you and it goes so far. And you don't, they didn't have to say one word. Them walking into the room was enough for me. Yeah. So I know what effect I could possibly have by being here for a few hours a day to see them. So the program's incredible. It supports the kids, you know, and if I can help inspire by one little percent while I'm here, then I've done my job. Famous footballer Beth Mead there, a star for both Arsenal and England's Lionesses. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to the programme. We have been discussing uh, girls in sports on the programme so far today and there's lots of lovely messages coming in. Uh, This person says, uh, loving your conversation this morning, my daughter is an ex-Repton head girl. She got into rugby in Dubai, played sport at school and for exiles, inspired by by Apollo Perilina and she's continued this at university and has now finished her master's and plays for Southport ladies team. She's just secured her first teaching role and will be introducing rugby to girls in her new school. Rugby helped her become a strong, determined female. Fantastic response there. Please do keep your comments coming on 4001. We love to hear them. 04871 is the WhatsApp number. But we are going to turn our attention now to our children's reading rates because Dubai's private schools are celebrating greatly improved rates of literacy. Basically, it's the private education authority in the Emirate, the KHDA. They say that schools here have now been ranked sixth in the world in the latest Progress in International Reading Literacy study. It's a five-year study. It happens every five years. And they look at the ability of grade four youngsters across the world. Now, to come sixth is a really big achievement because the uh, Dubai only really set its sights on the top 10 just a few years ago and we wanted to find out how Dubai managed it and and you know what's next essentially when it comes to reading rates to answer those questions and more producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with Fatima Bou Ali who is head of school inspections with the KHDA and she began by asking her how important the results of this study are to Dubai and to the KHDA BIRLS is an international comparative study that assesses the reading achievement of young students in their fourth year of schooling, which is considered an important uh, transition point in their uh, development as readers. Typically, by this time, students have learned how to read and are now reading to learn. BIRLS enable participating countries uh, to make evidence-based decisions for improving educational policy through measuring the effectiveness of the educational system in a global context. And uh, it also supports in identifying gaps in learning resources and opportunities to help young students become accomplished and uh, self-sufficient readers. Can you tell me a bit about how the assessment actually works? Are the children reading in English, in Arabic, in a mixture of languages? And are they aware that their reading abilities are being assessed? It depends on the um, language of instruction of the school. So students will be tested either in English or in Arabic language. Most of our students are being tested in uh, English language. And uh, yes, there is a window of testing uh, for these uh, uh, assessments. So students are aware uh, of that. 
it was a few years ago that Dubai set its sights on getting into the top 10. What has been done in that time to improve the performance and to make such a, a huge advance? In Berlin, 2021, students at Dubai Private School scored an average of 566 points, surpassing the international average by uh, 66 points and improving uh, on their 2016 result by uh, 39 points. A private school had moved from their uh, 31st rank in 2016 to the sixth in the world. Following each Pearl uh, cycle, KHDA issues a full report to each school. This includes Pearl's current score and targets for the next uh, assessment cycle. So schools effectively use all these data to adapt both the curriculum and the planning of lessons. During the quality assurance visits to these schools, we can see that there is a correlation between the school inspection judgment and the average girls score for each group of schools. For example, the average score for schools evaluated as outstanding is 631, which is significantly above the Dubai private school average. And average score for for very good is 588 and good is 564, which is significantly above the international scale average. So all these also support in improving um, uh, students' uh, reading literacy skills. The last ambition we had was sort of to get to the top 10. Now we're number six. Where do we go from here and, and how do we get there? We will continue, you know, uh, what we had started because uh, our ambition is to be, you know, the first in the world. And uh, during our quality assurance visits to schools, uh, we will be looking at uh, different initiatives, different opportunities that is conducted by schools to improve the performance of uh, students. And it's also uh, support uh, students in their uh, developmental of uh, language skills and also access to the curriculum. Now, studies show that there's a lot more to reading than just academic success, that countries which read a lot do better on any number of metrics. Why is it, you think now at this stage, that it is such a key ambition for Dubai to, to top this table? What benefits would it bring? Students' reading skills are important to their success in school and also life, as this will allow them to access the curriculum and improve their communication and language skills. Uh, students who have developed strong reading skills usually perform better in school and become a lifelong learners and contribute to a knowledge-based society. Um, results, um, Pearl's results show that 87% of students at Dubai Private School are confident in reading. Really great to hear there from Fatima Bu Ali. She is head of school inspections with the KHDA and, of course, is celebrating that fantastic result uh, that Dubai's private schools have been ranked sixth in the world in the latest respected global reading study. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yeah, turning our attention to 
to reading again because, as we've just heard, Dubai's private schools have been ranked sixth in the world in a recent respected global literacy study. It is the first time the city's made it into the top 10 and it follows a concerted and very well-supported effort to boost reading rates in the UAE. But what if your child doesn't want to read? What if they say they hate it? What if they won't sit down quietly? Well... Uh, what can we do about it? We wanted to get advice. So we went right to the top uh, and spoke to Isabel Abelhall. She is the founder of the Emirates Literature Foundation. And I started by asking her, well, I wanted to get, first of all, her reaction to this latest achievement. I think it's absolutely fantastic. So it's from the Pearls, which is a global measure across all things, and particularly reading is a sort of pillar of all education. And so I think to achieve that number on the scale is extremely good. And I wish that all children had the opportunity. So reading, learning to read, reading for pleasure, becoming a lifelong reader and learner, those are things that start very young. So if children are at home and they have access to books, if parents read to them daily, or or grandparents or, or, you know, family members, that is instilled in them. Who doesn't love a story? So the point is that we need to feed into the loving of a story, the loving of sort of absorbing different information and so on. So I think everyone is doing something really good to see that improvement. It's, It's remarkable. There's been a real focus in this country on reading specifically. For example, we've also got the Arab Reading Challenge, which, of course, has now become one of the largest reading projects in the world. This was obviously launched here in the UAE, but it now has a record participation of nearly 25 million students across 46 countries around the world, launched, obviously, by His Highness Sheikh Mohammed. Why do you think the government here has has pinpointed reading as as such a key skill? I think because they understand deeply that for everyone to be able to read and comprehend gives us so many other skills. Without that skill, doors will be shut to science, to space, to history, to anything else we do. We may not get into the university we want. We may not get the job we want because we are held back by our lack of reading skills and comprehension. So it is a vital necessity. And the Arab Reading Challenge obviously focuses very much on Arabic. Mother tongue is, again, incredibly important. So those children who read and are read to, their vocabulary will be larger. They will have more understanding of both their world and the world around them. So we always talk about books being both a mirror and a window. So the mirror, we need to see ourselves in the books we read as children, particularly, because if it's all boys, where are we girls, for example, or if no one in a story wears glasses, or it's not the landscape of what we're used to. So the mirror is very important for children, but also the window, so they can see the world outside their horizons as well. So that kind of balance is really important. I think what the Arab Reading Challenge has done under the guardianship and guidance of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed is incredible. And I've attended many of the awards ceremony and I cry every time. It's absolutely brilliant. So tell me, within the Arabic language, is there as much of a tradition of reading as there are in other languages? Is there as much for children to read in Arabic, for example, as there is in other languages? We often talk about how English is dominating on the internet, for example, and maybe squeezing out the opportunities for other languages. Do you think that might have happened when it came to books and literature? 
I absolutely think it is because, you know, traditions are very much part of everyone's culture. So the culture here was oral storytelling and Emiratis are the most amazing storytellers in terms of, you know, conjuring up pictures. If you think that that Mesopotamia, Iraq, modern day Iraq, was where the first writing came from, where the first law was written down, all of these things, you know, we have Babylon, the Leaning Tower of Babylon, we have the Library of Alexandria, they were way ahead, but they didn't then have the sort of impact where English is heard and used so much by everyone across the world. So it is a sort of a, a language that sort of drives out familiarity with others. So I think having a tradition of reading to children, reading bedtime stories is a very good way to form that bond with your child and books and that you give up your time to do it on a daily basis. That's how I grew up. And that's where my love of books and reading started. Same for my children, the same for my grandchildren, because it's a habit. It's it's passed down generations like favorite recipes. So to instill that habit is going to take time. So there has been a huge improvement in the number of books for children in Arabic, but there needs to be more. You know, Arabic is one of the United Nations languages. It's spoken by millions and millions of people. We need to do more about what access they have to really, really good fun books, because reading should be fun and they should feel attracted to it. But the more that it happens at home before they ever go to school, the better chance they have. Learning to read is like learning to swim, learning to ride a bike, learning to drive a car. None are pleasurable, but the results when you can do those things are great. So we need to have that flavor ahead of them going to school so they know that books are fun and they they want to get over that hurdle so they can read independently. And I think those are some of the challenges potentially with Arabic. And I think all other languages are suffering against English because it is like a virus. It's like the COVID of languages it's everywhere okay so how about a bit like me you've got two very active boys that refuse to sit still for a minute how can you encourage them to foster this love of reading so I think you've got to choose your times and you've got to have books available so I I have books all over the house uh, wherever my grandchildren are that that's the same and so they will, from when they're toddlers, they will just pull off books and bring them and and I will read them. But I also say to them, oh, that's really great, but I want to read you this story. So it's a, it's a democratic system. They choose what they want and I choose what I want and we read them together. And it's the time at bedtime is so important because when you are read to, your heart rate drops and your blood pressure falls. So you're relaxing. So nothing better than a bedtime story. And what you probably need to do with your two boys is say, right, you both choose a book. Um, I'll read yours tonight, but I'm going to choose a book and we'll read a chapter. I'm not sure how old they are, but lying. And I always used to lie. We used to lie in a big bed all together because I've got five children. We sort of piled into a thing and they each had a choice. I wouldn't read maybe five every night, but they would get to hear books that otherwise they wouldn't have heard. So it was very much a shared family thing that we did every night. And it was the way of switching off and going into sleep. So if your boys are playing football out there and you say, come and read, well, (laughs) that's never going to work. 
That's Isabel Abelhall there, the founder of the Emirates Literature Foundation, with lots of advice of how to turn your children into bookworms. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to the show. You are listening to Eye on Education on the Agenda. It is our chance to sort of put the spotlight on education issues, anything to do with schools, nurses, even adult learning. Uh, those are our hot topics of every Friday from 11 till 1. And we've been hearing just there about how we can get our kids more engaged in reading. But now we want to sort of look at a slightly different twist on it. You know, how reading can get them more engaged in environmental issues. Because, of course, uh, eco-education is a key priority for the UAE. We've talked about that before on the programme. And this year in particular, because the country is gearing up for the climate talks, COP28, in November. If I had a dirham for every time I have said the word COP28 on the radio, I think I wouldn't need to work anymore because, and it's only going to get more uh, more prevalent as we approach November. Now, to UAE-based authors are aiming to make the sort of eco-education process much easier for uh, specifically for primary school children uh, because they've self-published a whole series of books called Eco Heroes. The author is Colette Barr and the illustrator is Leona Collins. Now they've got five books in the series and they follow a group of youngsters who go through a series of adventures that touch on topics like food security, the importance of clean water, uh, plastics recycling and more. Now we wanted to find out a bit more about it. They sent books through to me and I was like, We've got to do this on Iron Education. And so I am delighted to be joined now in the studio by the illustrator of those books, Leona Collins. Leona, it's lovely to have you in with us. Great to have you around. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely. Now, first of all, I have to sort of ask you, did you write these books thinking, hang on a sec, we've got COP28 coming up. (laughs) Great way to market ourselves. it's like this confluence that's happening now, isn't it? No, because we started in 2018 and it all began with Colette Barr, who you said rightly is the author. Um, and she had this idea that she wanted to create these um, fun but informative uh, and empowering books for primary aged kids here. Both of our kids were, um, well, we both had kids in primary school at the time back in 2018. So she had in her head, she had developed this concept that we need to have more climate education books, but they need to be fun. They need to be uh, relatable to the kids here. So we felt that there was um, a gap in that here that kids here could recognize themselves in the stories but and also could recognize Dubai and the UAE within the stories and within the whole concept of environmentalism. So um, she said about creating five books um, and then she asked me to come on board as the illustrator. So that's kind of how it all started. I can't um, believe it was so long ago I, yeah. and, and that it's all, you know, all five are now finished and it's the perfect timing, yes. you know, for COP28. Of course, and nobody even knew that COP28 was going to be here then, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's brilliant. It's really brilliant. And tell me, uh, have you, you know, are you a regular illustrator of children's books? No, this is the first time I actually illustrated uh, children's books. Um, I am a textile designer uh, by trade. Uh, so I've been in Dubai nearly 20 years and I've been uh, a designer in that capacity for all those years and a visual designer. So I guess I had transferable skills. You know, I paint and I draw as part of that job. So um, Colette and I were actually next door neighbours. That's how we knew each other. And she knew I was an artist. So um, she asked me, would you have a go? 
Um, and of course, they said, yeah, because it was the, the stories, the concept themselves and the fact that my kids were that age in primary school as well at the time. And I felt that this was really, really um, needed. I think so. it's going to be, I'm, I'm just looking at some of the books now, some of the illustrations. They are instantly recognisable to anyone who lives here. So one of the pictures here, you can see the Burj Khalifa in the background. Yeah. Uh, you can see that that sort of winking eye bridge that we've got over the canal. Yeah, the uh, tolerance bridge, yeah. Yeah, it's, you've even got the sort of... Um, the icebox that we all have. You know, we all have the same yes. icebox when we go on picnics <laughs> and the kids are on scooters and we know that children love scooters and they, you've got Bougainvillier. And I, I mean, it, it just, you can tell that, and, and also the children are wearing traditional Emirati dress. See, this is really, really important to us because I was just listening to um, the segment previously that Isabella Bahul was talking about how books are a mirror as well as a window. And it's absolutely Bang on. Yeah, that's completely how we felt about it, that kids, our kids are growing up in a very multicultural place um, and they needed to recognise themselves in the books. So the eco heroes themselves, all the characters are quite diverse. Um, there's two girls, three boys. Um, there's two Emiratis. There's an African boy. There's an Indian girl. There's a Scottish boy. So it was trying to be a representation of expat kids here. Um, living in a very multicultural place, but also not just the characters themselves, but the environment that they're in. So you see the desert, you see the skyscrapers, you see the palm trees, you see the the, the, the ocean and, and, and the mountains as well. And depending on which book you're, you're reading, you know, they, they go for camping in the desert or they go paddle boarding on the ocean. Um, there's a lot of different things that chime with the lifestyle that our kids are living here. So they could recognise that. Um, and I think that was really important because... Ultimately, the books are about delivering a message of environmental awareness um, and also empowering them that they, every, every day they can make small but meaningful decisions that cause positive impact, you know. Mm. Um, and it can be a very overwhelming subject, of course, and quite scary as well, you know, the, the way the climate crisis is going. So we wanted to make sure that it was empowering, but also that um, it's fun. You know, the, the kids in the, in the books go on really fun adventures um, it's very recognisable. Um, they're learning without realising it. Um, and there's also, it touches on issues like friendship, um, UE heritage and culture, um, and growing up as an expat here, having a whole diverse range of experiences and friendships. So, you know, all of that is sort of encapsulated in the stories as well. They really speak to the children here. Now, obviously, it's all come about at exactly the right moment. You know, how are you distributing the books how are we getting them into the so primary primarily school? we had we did do a lot of uh, school visits in the first two years and of course COVID hit so that put a stop to that but we have we spend a lot of time over COVID redeveloping our website um, and we love the website we think it looks great we have a lot of resources and free content that you can download from our website but primarily you can buy our books on the website and we have ebooks as well as print books. Um, all of the print books are printed on recycled paper with vegetable inks. That's why we self-publish because we wanted to be in control of that. Um, the website is saveourworld.me. That was the company that Colette and myself uh, set up so that we could self-publish the Eco Heroes. Um, so that's that's your primary source to, to get the books. They are also available in Magrudi's Booktopia. We have books out at the Terra Pavilion in um, Expo City. Uh, we were there during the Expo. They sold out. It was amazing. Um, they've reordered and we're back in there again. Um, so, yeah, 
Um, that's where it's, you can get our books. Well, I have to say, it's really lovely to hear of a homegrown, eco-friendly story such as this. Quite literally, you know, five stories. And yes, it, that website, saveourworld.me, I'm on it at the moment. It's beautiful. It's really nicely done. And I oh, just, thank you. Yeah, I just hope that you guys will have yet more representation at, at COP28 go, going forward. I hope so. This would be the, an amazing thing for the next thing for the, the eco-heroes. So we finished yeah. the fifth book now and it's like, what next for the eco-heroes? So... Um, here's hoping that there is a platform or a voice for climate education or a youth pavilion or I don't know um, what format it could take, but there's such an amazing um, sustainability ecosystem here. There's so many individuals and SMEs in that sector doing great things and hopefully we can get a voice there because it needs to come from grassroots as well as, you know, you know, the high level discussions that are happening as well. So I think there's a place for everybody. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's going to be really interesting when they roll into town, when the UN rolls into it's town. It's going to be great. Yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, Leona Collins there, illustrator of those Eco Heroes series of books. And again, if you want to buy them or if you want to check out the website, just go to saveourworld.me. Thank you for coming in. Thank it's you been very a much. pleasure. Lovely to have you with us. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.